Turkaya Halk Bankazi, aka Halk Bank, the United States. On writ of certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Decided April 19, 2023. Justice Kavanaugh delivered the opinion of the court, in which Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, Justice Barrett, and Justice Jackson joined. Justice Gorsuch filed an opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part, in which Justice Alito joined. The United States indicted Halkbank, a bank owned by the Republic of Turkey, for conspiring to evade U.S. economic sanctions against Iran. The United States brought the prosecution in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Hulkbank contends that the indictment should be dismissed because the General Federal Criminal Jurisdiction Statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 3231, does not extend to prosecutions of instrumentalities of foreign states, such as Hulkbank. Hulkbank alternatively argues that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976 provides instrumentalities of foreign states with absolute immunity from criminal prosecution in U.S. courts. We disagree with Halkbank on both points. We hold that the district court has jurisdiction under 18 U.S.C. Section 3231 over the prosecution of Halkbank. We further hold that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act does not provide immunity from criminal prosecution. With respect to an additional common law immunity argument raised by Halkbank, we vacate the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand. Part 1 Halkbank is a bank whose shares are majority owned by the Turkish Wealth Fund, which in turn is part of and owned by the Republic of Turkey. In 2019, the United States indicted Halkbank for a multi-year conspiracy to evade economic sanctions imposed by the United States on Iran. The indictment alleged that Halkbank, with the assistance of high-ranking Turkish government officials, laundered billions of dollars of Iranian oil and gas proceeds through the global financial system including the U.S. financial system, in violation of U.S. sanctions and numerous federal statutes. The indictment further claimed that Hulkbank made false statements to the U.S. Treasury Department in an effort to conceal the scheme. Two individual defendants, including a former Hulkbank executive, have already been convicted in federal court for their roles in the alleged conspiracy. According to the U.S. government, several other indicted defendants, including Halkbank's former general manager and its former head of foreign operations, remain at large. Halkbank moved to dismiss the indictment on the ground that an instrumentality of a foreign state, such as Halkbank, 
is immune from criminal prosecution under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976. The U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York denied the motion, reasoning in relevant part that the FSIA does not appear to grant immunity in criminal proceedings. Hulkbunk filed an interlocutory appeal, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed. The Court of Appeals first determined that the district court has subject matter jurisdiction over this criminal prosecution under 18 U.S.C. Section 3231. As to the FSIA, the Court of Appeals assumed without deciding that the FSIA confers immunity in criminal proceedings to foreign states and their instrumentalities, but held that in any event, Hallbunk's charged conduct fell within the FSIA's exception for commercial activities. We granted certiorari. Part 2 Hulkbank first contends that the district court lacks jurisdiction over this criminal prosecution. Section 3231 of Title 18 provides, The district courts of the United States shall have original jurisdiction, exclusive of the courts of the states, of all offenses against the laws of the United States. Via its sweeping language, Section 3231 opens federal district courts to the full range of federal prosecutions for violations of federal criminal law. By its terms, Section 3231 plainly encompasses Hallbank's alleged criminal offenses, which were against the laws of the United States. Hallbank cannot and does not dispute that Section 3231's text as written encompasses the offenses charged in the indictment. Hulkbank nonetheless argues that the statute implicitly excludes foreign states and their instrumentalities. In support of that argument, Hulkbank identifies certain civil and bankruptcy statutes that expressly refer to actions against foreign states and their instrumentalities. Because Section 3231 refers generically to all federal criminal offenses without specifically mentioning foreign states or their instrumentalities, Hulkbank reasons that foreign states and their instrumentalities do not fall within Section 3231's scope. We decline to graft an atextual limitation onto Section 3231's broad jurisdictional grant over all offenses simply because several unrelated provisions in the U.S. Code happen to expressly reference foreign states and instrumentalities. Those scattered references in distinct contexts do not shrink the textual scope of Section 3231, which operates without regard to the identity or status of the defendant. Nor will we create a new, clear statement rule requiring Congress to clearly indicate its intent to include foreign states and their instrumentalities within Section 3231's jurisdictional grant. 
Hulkbank also points to Section 3231's predecessor, a provision of the Judiciary Act of 1789 granting district courts cognizance of all crimes and offenses that shall be cognizable under the authority of the United States. In Hulkbank's view, other statutory provisions from that same era, including several that refer to suits against foreign actors, suggest that Congress would have expressly referenced foreign states and their instrumentalities if Congress had intended the 1789 provision to reach those entities. And Hulkbank says that we should read Section 3231 like its predecessor provision. The premise is unsupported. The 1789 provision, like Section 3231 itself, contains no exception for prosecutions of foreign states or their instrumentalities. And this court has never suggested that the 1789 provision contains an implicit exception. So the 1789 provision does not help Hawkbank's argument that we should find an implicit exception in Section 3231. Finally, Hulkbank invokes a separate provision of the 1789 Judiciary Act granting district courts jurisdiction over all civil causes of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. Hulkbank asserts that this court has construed that provision not to confer jurisdiction over foreign state entities. It follows, Hulkbank says, that the 1789 Act's similar general reference to all crimes and offenses and its successor, Section 3231's reference to all offenses likewise must be interpreted not to reach foreign states and their instrumentalities. We disagree with Hulkbank's reading of our precedents. The case on which Hulkbank primarily relies Schooner Exchange, indeed held that a district court lacked jurisdiction over a suit claiming ownership of a French warship docked in a Philadelphia port. But Schooner Exchange did not address statutory subject matter jurisdiction. Instead, as this court has since explained, Schooner Exchange concerned principles of foreign sovereign immunity that developed as a matter of common law. Contrary to Hulkbank's contention, the common law sovereign immunity recognized in Schooner Exchange is a rule of substantive law governing the exercise of the jurisdiction of the courts, not an exception to a general statutory grant of subject matter jurisdiction. In sum, the district court has jurisdiction under 18 U.S.C. Section 3231 over this criminal prosecution. Part 3 Relying on the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, Hulkbank contends that it enjoys immunity from criminal prosecution. We disagree because the Act does not provide foreign states and their instrumentalities with immunity from criminal proceedings. Section A the doctrine of foreign sovereign immunity originally developed in U.S. courts as a matter of common law 
rather than by statute. In determining whether to allow suits against foreign sovereigns, however, courts traditionally defer to the decisions of the political branches, in particular those of the executive branch. In 1952, the State Department announced the restrictive theory of foreign sovereign immunity, under which immunity was typically afforded in cases involving a foreign state's public acts, but not its strictly commercial acts. In the ensuing years, the process by which the executive branch submitted statements regarding a foreign state's immunity sometimes led to inconsistency, particularly in light of the case-by-case diplomatic pressure that the executive branch received from foreign nations. And when foreign states did not ask the State Department to weigh in, courts were left to render immunity rulings on their own, generally by reference to prior State Department decisions. In 1976, Congress entered the fray and sought to standardize the judicial process with respect to immunity for foreign sovereign entities in civil cases. Congress passed and President Ford signed the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. The FSIA prescribed a comprehensive set of legal standards governing claims of immunity in every civil action against a foreign state. To that end, the FSIA codifies a baseline principle of immunity for foreign states and their instrumentalities. The FSIA then sets out exceptions to that principle, including, for example, the exception for commercial activities. The FSIA defines a foreign state to encompass instrumentalities of a foreign state, including entities that are directly and majority-owned by a foreign state. Since the FSIA's enactment, this court has repeatedly stated that the statute applies in civil actions. Although the court has not expressly held that the FSIA covers only civil matters, the court has never applied the act's immunity provisions in a criminal case. We now hold that the FSIA does not grant immunity to foreign states or their instrumentalities in criminal proceedings. Through the FSIA, Congress enacted a comprehensive scheme governing claims of immunity in civil actions against foreign states and their instrumentalities. That scheme does not cover criminal cases. 1. To begin with, the text of the FSIA indicates that the statute exclusively addresses civil suits against foreign states and their instrumentalities. The first provision of the FSIA grants district courts original jurisdiction over any non-jury civil action against a foreign state as to any claim for relief in personam with respect to which the foreign state is not entitled to immunity. The FSIA then sets forth a carefully calibrated scheme that relates only to civil cases. For instance, the sole FSIA venue provision exclusively addresses venue in a civil action 
against a foreign state. The Act similarly provides for removal to federal court of a civil action brought in state court. The Act prescribes detailed rules, including those governing service of the summons and complaint. Along with an answer or other responsive pleading to the complaint, as well as for any judgment of default that relate to civil cases alone. So too the Act's provision regarding counterclaims concerns only civil proceedings. Finally, the Act renders a non-immune foreign state liable in the same manner and to the same extent as a private individual, except that a foreign state shall not be liable for punitive damages. Each of those terms characterizes civil, not criminal, litigation. Other parts of the statute underscore the FSIA's exclusively civil focus. Congress codified its finding that authorizing federal courts to determine claims of foreign sovereign immunity would protect the rights of both foreign states and litigants in United States courts. The statutory term litigants does not ordinarily sweep in governments acting in a prosecutorial capacity. What is more, Congress described the FSIA as defining the circumstances in which foreign states are immune from suit, not from criminal investigation or prosecution. In stark contrast to those many provisions concerning civil actions, the FSIA is silent as to criminal matters. The Act says not a word about criminal proceedings against foreign states or their instrumentalities. If Hulkbank were correct that the FSIA immunizes foreign states and their instrumentalities from criminal prosecution, the subject undoubtedly would have surfaced somewhere in the Act's text. Congress typically does not hide elephants in mouse holes. Context reinforces text. Although the vast majority of litigation involving foreign states and their instrumentalities at the time of the FSIA's enactment in 1976 was civil, the executive branch occasionally attempted to subject foreign government-owned entities to federal criminal investigation. Given that history, it becomes even more unlikely that Congress sought to codify foreign sovereign immunity from criminal proceedings without saying a word about such proceedings. Congress's determination about the FSIA's precise location within the U.S. Code bolsters that inference. Congress expressly decided to house each provision of the FSIA within Title 28, which mostly concerns civil procedure. But the FSIA did not alter Title 18, which addresses crimes and criminal procedure. Finally, this court's decision in Samantar supports the conclusion that the FSIA does not apply to criminal proceedings. In Samantar, we considered whether the FSIA's immunity provisions applied to a suit against an individual foreign official based on actions taken in his official capacity.
analyzing the act's text, purpose, and history, the court determined that the FSIA's comprehensive solution for suits against states does not extend to suits against individual officials. As in Samantar, we conclude here that the FSIA's provisions concerning suits against foreign states and their instrumentalities do not extend to a discrete context, in this case, criminal proceedings. The Act's careful calibration of jurisdiction, procedures, and remedies for civil litigation confirms that Congress did not cover criminal proceedings. Put simply, immunity in criminal proceedings was not the particular problem to which Congress was responding. 2. In response to all of that evidence of the FSIA's exclusively civil scope, Halkbank emphasizes a sentence of the FSIA codified at 28 U.S.C. section 1604. Subject to existing international agreements, a foreign state shall be immune from the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States and of the states, except as provided in sections 1605 to 1607 of this chapter. Halkbank contends that section 1604 renders it immune not only from civil suits, but also from criminal prosecutions. In complete isolation, section 1604 might be amenable to that reading, but this court has a duty to construe statutes, not isolated provisions. And the court must read the words Congress enacted in their context and with a view to their place in the overall statutory scheme. When we consider section 1604 alongside its neighboring FSIA provisions, it becomes overwhelmingly evident that section 1604 does not grant immunity to foreign states and their instrumentalities in criminal matters. Section 1330A is the place to start. This court has explained that sections 1604 and 1330A work in tandem. Indeed, the public law containing the FSIA begins with section 1330 and then later follows with section 1604. Recall that section 1330A confers district court jurisdiction over any non-jury civil action against a foreign state, as to any claim for relief in personam with respect to which the foreign state is not entitled to immunity. Section 1604 then confers immunity on foreign states unless an enumerated statutory exception applies. Reading the two provisions together, as we must, and sequentially, per Congress's design, the natural inference is that Section 1604 operates exclusively in civil cases. Section 1330A spells out a universe of civil and only civil cases against foreign states over which district courts have jurisdiction, and Section 1604 then clarifies how principles of immunity operate within that limited civil universe. 
We thus decline to read Section 1604's Grant of Immunity to apply in criminal proceedings. A category of cases beyond the civil actions contemplated in Section 1330A, the jurisdictional grant to which Section 1604 is substantively and sequentially linked. Before making that leap, we would expect to find some express textual indication regarding Section 1604's purportedly broader-than-civil scope, but none exists. Moreover, Halkbank's interpretation of Section 1604 is difficult to square with its interpretation of Section 1605, an FSIA provision delineating exceptions to the immunity granted in Section 1604. Hulkbank reads Section 1604 to confer immunity in both civil and criminal cases, but Hulkbank then turns around and insists that the exceptions to that immunity specified in Section 1605, exceptions which, per the statute, apply in any case, attach exclusively in civil matters. In other words, Hulkbank sees Section 1330 as operating only in civil cases, Section 1604 in both civil and criminal cases, and Section 1605 only in civil cases. In Hulkbank's view, the FSIA's scope awkwardly flip-flops from civil to civil and criminal and back to civil again in sequential provisions. Congress did not write such a mangled statute. The better and more natural reading is that Sections 1330, 1604, and 1605 operate in tandem within a single universe of civil matters. The FSIA's remaining provisions described above, namely those detailing elaborate procedures and remedies applicable exclusively in civil cases, strongly buttress the conclusion that Section 1604 lays down a baseline principle of foreign sovereign immunity from civil actions and from civil actions alone. Considering the FSIA as a whole, there is nothing to suggest we should read Section 1604 to apply to criminal proceedings. In sum, Hulkbank's narrow focus on Section 1604 misses the forest for the trees, and a single tree at that. Hulkbank's Section 1604 argument reduces to the implausible contention that Congress enacted a statute focused entirely on civil actions, and then in one provision that does not mention criminal proceedings, somehow stripped the executive branch of all power to bring domestic criminal prosecutions against instrumentalities of foreign states. On Hulkbank's view, a purely commercial business that is directly and majority owned by a foreign state could engage in criminal conduct affecting U.S. citizens and threatening U.S. national security while facing no criminal accountability at all in U.S. courts. Nothing in the FSIA supports that result.
Section B. Hawkbank advances three additional reasons why this court should read the FSIA to immunize foreign states and their instrumentalities from criminal proceedings. None is persuasive. First, Hawkbank emphasizes this court's statement in a 1989 case that the FSIA is the sole basis for obtaining jurisdiction over a foreign state in federal court. But Amarada Hess was not a criminal case. Rather, it was a civil case brought under the Alien Tort Statute and under the federal court's general admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. This court has often admonished that general language in judicial opinions should be read as referring in context to circumstances similar to the circumstances then before the court, and not referring to quite different circumstances that the court was not then considering. Amarada Hess made clear that the FSIA displaces general grants of subject matter jurisdiction in Title 28, that is, in civil cases against foreign states. The court had no occasion to consider the FSIA's implications for Title 18's grant of criminal jurisdiction over all federal criminal offenses. At any rate, Amarada Hess's rationale does not translate to the criminal context. The court's holding as to the non-applicability of general civil jurisdictional grants was based on the FSIA's own civil jurisdictional grant and the comprehensiveness of the statutory scheme as to civil matters. But the FSIA contains no grant of criminal jurisdiction and says nothing about criminal matters, a distinct legal regime housed in an entirely separate title of the U.S. Code. The FSIA did not implicitly repeal or modify 18 U.S.C. Section 3231's core grant of criminal jurisdiction. Second, Hawkbank warns that courts and the executive will lack congressional guidance as to procedure in criminal cases if we conclude that the FSIA does not apply in the criminal context. But that concern carried no weight in Samantar, which likewise deemed the FSIA's various procedures inapplicable to a specific category of cases. They're suits against foreign officials. In any event, the federal rules of criminal procedure would govern any federal criminal proceedings. And although Hulkbank argues that Congress would not have been indifferent to criminal jury trials involving instrumentalities of foreign states, Juries already resolved similarly sensitive cases against foreign officials after Samantar. Third, Hulkbank briefly raises a consequentialist argument. According to Hulkbank, if the FSIA does not apply to criminal proceedings, then state prosecutors would also be free to commence criminal proceedings against foreign states and their instrumentalities. Hulkbank argues that those state prosecutions would raise foreign policy concerns, but we must interpret the FSIA as written, and the statute simply does not grant immunity to foreign states and their instrumentalities in criminal matters. 
In addition, it is not evident that the premise of Halkbank's consequentialist argument is correct. To begin with, Halkbank offers no history of state prosecutors subjecting foreign states or their instrumentalities to criminal jurisdiction. And if such a state prosecution were brought, the United States could file a suggestion of immunity. A decision by a state court to deny foreign sovereign immunity might be reviewable by this court, a question we do not here address. Moreover, state criminal proceedings involving foreign states or their instrumentalities might be preempted under principles of foreign affairs preemption, another question we do not here address. And if those principles do not apply or do not suffice to protect U.S. national security and foreign policy interests, Congress and the President may always respond by enacting additional legislation. In short, Halkbank's various FSIA arguments are infused with the notion that U.S. criminal proceedings against instrumentalities of foreign states would negatively affect U.S. national security and foreign policy. But it is not our role to rewrite the FSIA based on purported policy concerns that Congress and the President have not seen fit to recognize. The FSIA does not provide foreign states and their instrumentalities with immunity from criminal proceedings. Part 4 Although the FSIA does not immunize Halkbank from criminal prosecution, Halkbank advances one other plea for immunity. In the context of a civil proceeding, this court has recognized that a suit not governed by the FSIA may still be barred by foreign sovereign immunity under the common law. Halkbank maintains that principles of common law immunity preclude this criminal prosecution, even if the FSIA does not. To that end, Halkbank contends that common law immunity principles operate differently in criminal cases than in civil cases, and Halkbank argues that the executive branch cannot unilaterally abrogate common law immunity by initiating prosecution. The government disagrees. Reasoning from pre-FSIA history and precedent, the government asserts that the common law does not provide for foreign sovereign immunity when, as here, the executive branch has commenced a federal criminal prosecution of a commercial entity like Halkbank. In the alternative, the government contends that any common law immunity in criminal cases would not extend to commercial activities such as those undertaken by Halkbank. The Court of Appeals did not fully consider the various arguments regarding common law immunity that the parties press in this court, nor did the Court of Appeals address whether and to what extent foreign states and their instrumentalities are differently situated for purposes of common law immunity in the criminal context. We express no view on those issues and leave them for the Court of Appeals to consider on remand. With respect to the holding of the Court of Appeals that the District Court has jurisdiction under 18 U.S.C. Section 3231, we affirm. 
with respect to the holding of the Court of Appeals that the FSIA does not provide immunity to Hulkbank, we affirm on different grounds, namely that the FSIA does not apply to criminal proceedings. With respect to common law immunity, we vacate the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand for the Court of Appeals to consider the party's common law arguments in a manner consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.